Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. One day... All of the facts in about 30 years' time will be published. When genocide has been carried out in this country almost with impunity, and when it is near to completion, people talk about intervention. You don't get freedom peacefully. Freedom is never uh, safeguarded peacefully. Anyone who is depriving you of freedom isn't deserving of, an, of a peaceful approach. Hello, and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Over the past few months, the world watched as the conflict between Israel and Palestine flared up. Uh, I'm not interested in litigating the facts of that conflict in this opening, as you've likely already decided where you stand. For some, it's complicated. For others, the very idea that someone would call it complicated is an insult. Here to un- help us untangle some of what's happened and to give us a different perspective than we've had on the show recently and to discuss the future of Palestine is Joey Ayub. Joey is a writer, scholar, and podcaster who grew up in Lebanon and is of Palestinian descent. He writes broadly about the experiences of displaced people with a particular focus on the Middle East. Joey, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. One of the things that really struck me this go-round, and it feels awful to call it a go-round, but mm-hmm. th- this is something that's been going on the entire time I've been alive, and it always felt similar. Mm-hmm. This time felt different. Why did it feel different this time? All right, number of things. So I guess whenever we we start talking about, if you ask me a question like, when did the reason of violence start? That's a very complicated one because in many ways the violence never ended, and so we just need to we can start wherever we want to start for the sake of just having a conversation. But for people under occupation, by default, violence never ends. What felt different this time around? I guess there are like three different things I can think of. One is the sheer brutality of it. It was faster and much more violent. The bombings were more intense than even in 2014 over Gaza. Another thing is the events that happened within Israel proper. So, you know, the tensions between Palestinians and Israeli Jews who are citizens of the same state in the specific context. And the final difference is the international reaction. We've definitely seen a more like a significant shift in coverage for one Palestinians are actually being platformed, which is not that common, historically speaking. Media, Western media in, in, in general, American media more specifically, although in Europe it's not necessarily much better, have been seen by Palestinians or most Palestinians as essentially complicit. And more recently, we've seen a attempt at the very least to platform more Palestinians in order to have a more nuanced view of what's been happening. So I suppose those are three factors that we can get into. Yeah, it's fascinating to me, actually, because growing up in the United States and as a Jewish person in the United States, very used to very comfortable coverage. And yeah. it there's I've noticed the shift that you're talking about, and it's dramatic. Do you think this has been a gradual thing that has gotten us here? Or do you see it as a big turnaround that's happened all of a sudden, too? Well, you know, like I, I, I wrote my master's thesis in 2016. And as it happens, it was on the politics of Hebrew and Yiddish within Jewish political culture in general. I focused on Israel and America and a bit of Britain because I was in London. And in towards the end of that thesis, and now I regret not having it published, I basically just mentioned that there is a growing rift between especially American Jews more broadly and Israeli Jews. The reason I said that was 
it was in a specific context, right? 2016, you had elections, you had the only major Jewish uh, candidate, Bernie Sanders, not going to APAC. You had, for whatever people want to agree or disagree with him, that is obviously politically significant. And of course, you also had the sort of rise of groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, if not now, other groups, and even more mainstream organizations, at least shifting from, one might argue, at least from conservative to liberal, that sort of thing. And there's a lot of interesting parallels that I also wrote a chapter on the attempts at creating solidarity between Palestinians and Palestinian Americans specifically, and African Americans, for example. In 2014, of course, with the Ferguson protests, which happened around the same time as the then, at the time, worst bombing over Gaza by the Israelis, it, it led to a lot of kind of these intersections being built organically. And I think that's part, at least part of the story that we're seeing, other than the generational shifts as well in politics. Do you think this kind of leads down a different track than I was thinking about? Then do you think that uh, part of this is that the internet has allowed leftist movements broadly to create like these intersectionalities where they maybe didn't exist before? Yeah, and inevitably so in many ways. We, we can spend hours probably discussing the pros and cons of social media. I have a lot of issues with them, as I'm sure you do as well. But yeah, one thing that in a specific context like a conflict or a war or a anything that is that can be documented and there is a value in sharing what's happening as it's happening after a few seconds sometimes live of course as well there is so much that you can your ideological barriers don't necessarily have time to filter down filter what's happening if you're just seeing it happening you can only you can only go so far and of course, it still works with many people. There are many people who, you know, will see the bombing of a kindergarten or the bombing of a media office or the bombing of just a civilian building. And you will have the same kind of automatic reactions like Hamas was probably there or et cetera, et cetera, all of these kind of almost instinctual responses. You have your prepackaged uh, story and then you fit fit it with whatever narrative you want. But if it's happening again and again live and many people are just tweeting what's happening and they're just saying that they're terrified for their kids or it's not even about there is a a, a double edged sword in some ways. And I, I guess this is the sense. This is the aspect of it where it is positive, if you see what I mean. Obviously, there are negative aspects, disinformation, manipulation, all of those things also exist and they come with the package. But at least on that front, yeah, I would definitely say that's that's part of the that's part of the explanation. And it makes sense, too, because mm -hmm. I think Middle East now, and particularly Israel and Palestinian territories or Palestine, are really plugged in a way, plugged in a way that other parts, other places where, let's say, the United States is acting, for example. So you get instant images from Gaza in a way that, let's say, the United States bombed a wedding in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. has happened several times. Yeah. But you don't get that instantaneous shock you yeah. just don't it's very different there's just a connectedness in gaza now that is it's really striking right yeah i i think that like i'm also involved a lot in syria circles and that's something that you know syrian activists have been trying to to do as well one of the reasons why it's been more difficult for them for example at least in recent years is that in many ways, their story is much more recent, especially, I mean, in many ways, it's five decades old as well with the Assad regime, but in, in many ways, it's like the past decade, right? With Palestinians, my, my grandfather was born and raised in Haifa, and this is something that, that has been happening for a number of generations now, three generations, fourth generation now coming. And there has, the time was like, we've had the time in some ways to build much more resilient networks in many ways. Referring again to the, the Palestinian Americans linking up with African Americans and, and with Jewish Americans as well. There's a lot of those intersections between Jewish Voice for Peace, just to name a, you know, a, a, a well-known name. And, you know, declaring solidarity with Palestinians while at the same time saying Black Lives Matter. You have these kind of intersections happening. And it's happening on multiple levels. Part of it is like within academia, there's been a reframing a pretty interesting one, a reframing of quote-unquote the conflict as looking at it through this anti-colonial lens. And this allows a, a separate or an additional layer of nuance that, at least in recent decades, I think we haven't really seen as much outside of the context in which they're actually happening. Palestinians have been calling this colonialism since it's been happening. But in terms of it becoming just framed in a particular way, I personally, and this is like an argument that others have made as well, do see the what's been happening specifically within the United States, like much more so than in Europe, 
the coverage within like by American media outlets uh, with all of the criticism that I can give them has been on average a bit better than what's been happening in Europe. I'm based in Switzerland, so I, I see this first. But I think that's part of the shift, uh, a generational shift within, within American discourse, especially among like younger people. And I think this is where at least part of the explanation as to why it's been is being framed in that way. I do. I think it's also interesting, just one other thing, which is mm-hmm. that Europe, I think, is seen as more hostile to both Jews and uh, yes. Arabs than yes the uh, United States is the vitriol uh, against Jewish people. And it's not that it, I think there's a misunderstanding that it's coming expressly from Muslims, but actually it's a surrounding culture as well. And you have the largest Jewish population left in Europe is 500,000 people in France and they're leaving and they're not leaving because they of what's happening with Muslims. No. It's interesting. There's anti-Muslim sentiment. There's anti-Semitism also. And they're both very powerful forces, I think, in Europe. Yeah. I mean, this argument so many times is actually a bit tiring now. But uh, like anti-Semitism in Europe is, is very much still a thing. It's pretty widespread. It doesn't necessarily translate into death to Jews being chanted out loud. But it's actually just part of the, in many aspects, part of mainstream culture. I can, and this is a bit of a nuanced topic, so maybe I can't get into it as much, but in France, just because you mentioned France, you will have a intersection between left and right when it comes to globalist conspiracy theories, right? You have these things being just, they, they take on a different vocabulary, but essentially they're saying the same thing. There is a mysterious global cabal of whatever doing X and Y and Z, and we know that this comes from a pretty deep historic, I don't want to say historical because it's ongoing, but especially obviously pre-Holocaust European history. And there is a myth within Europe that anti-Semitism was basically resolved after World War II, which is a pretty convenient, you know, way of looking at things. But it's just not true. I completely agree with you. I mean, we, we know that there is issues of anti-Semitism on the left in, in Britain, to France, to, to parts of the German left, et cetera, et cetera. And most people tend not to see it because they view anti-Semitism usually as overt anti-Jewish bigotry. And I mean, obviously that's part of it. But there are these more structural or even ideological layers that, that permit, what's the word? Like they just get spread, spread around much faster, if you see what I mean. And yeah, absolutely. In Europe, I think it's part of it. And personally, this might be more of a contentious argument. And I'm, I'm not making that argument wholeheartedly necessarily, but I think it's just part of the picture. I think in many ways, Europe does, did not want to deal with anti-Semitism. And so they just, support Israel wholeheartedly and say, we'll just do this. And that's the solution of it. We'll defend the only Jewish state in the world. Therefore, we cannot be anti-Semitic. And at the same time, you can have someone like Viktor Orban, who is absolutely anti-Semitic and is pro-Israel. These things exist. And the authoritarianism does not follow a coherent logic all the time. It doesn't mean that it's not authoritarianism. Well, it provides the, if it provides picture, Israel provides people like Viktor Orban, and I say this in a messed up way, but it provides them a proof of concept I think, because part like the light, more public facing version of anti-Semitism is that you get these people out of the country. And if you have Israel, then you have some place where they mm-hmm. can go. So that's part of it. I think that's an- I, I don't I don't think it's all of it. I, I have issues with people who just say that Europe just supports Zionism in order to get rid of its anti-Semitic problem, quote unquote, the Jewish question, as it was called pre-Holocaust, even to this day. But uh, it, it's part of the picture for sure. It's part of the picture for sure. And I, I think you see this in Europe even much more so than you see in America. Again, I don't know. It depends how much we want to get into it, but it is, it is, it's kind of an obsession of mine. So I do get into this as well. But yeah. So I have a theory. and <laughs> I apologize for that, but I do. And I spent a lot of my time studying the Holocaust and I worked at the Holocaust Museum for a while. And I have this feeling that one of the things that shifted is that, in a sense, it shows that the Holocaust is well and truly over. Uh, A lot of the guilt over the Holocaust has started to go away. Yeah. And we're now in this interesting position where, as you said, it's okay to criticize Israel in a way that it hadn't been up to this point. And I think that really does demonstrate that 70, uh, 80 years now, since the Holocaust is over, people are a little tired of it. (laughs) <laughs> would you say that that's, that's true i i study the holocaust as much as i can 
I'm not a scholar by any means. I just, I study it a lot. I study anti-Semitism as an ideology, right? Not just as anti-Jewish bigotry again, which again, it's part of, but it's not the entire picture. One thing that I'm actually worried about, which is, again, this double-edged sword in some ways, that of course, in some ways, everyone needs to, like society or civilization, whatever, needs to move on from past traumas. It can't always be there. At the same time, and I can even think of like much more recent horrors than the Holocaust, like the Bosnian one, for example. I worry about the the negationism, the denialism that we still see. And with the Holocaust, most of the time, it's not like overt denialism, but I do think there is a way, there is a, or at least an argument to be made that denialism as a phenomenon is still very much with us. And we see it in different different manifestations. It can be anything from some people on the left, like authoritarians on the left, de- denying the concentra- concentration camps in Xinjiang. It can be people who still romanticize people like Milosevic or Saddam Hussein or Gaddafi, for that matter. It can manifest itself in different ways. It's not the exact same thing as Holocaust denialism. Obviously, they occupy different political niche in some ways. But there are echoes there, there are parallels, and often they actually they intersect with one another you know, quite often as well. You have Assadists supporting the CCP, for example, and that sort of thing. That's the, the flip side. I think that there is, I struggle to say lessons because I don't like trauma to then become a lesson in itself, like when we speak about the Holocaust. But there are definitely, especially like parallels in the run-up to the Holocaust that we are seeing today. And again, it doesn't mean that there's going to be Holocaust 2.0. That this doesn't mean that things are going to repeat themselves in the same way. They tend not to. But these underlying authoritarian tendencies and politics and whatnot are very much still with us. And people need, who, who are not paying attention to France should really start paying attention to France because I worry that we, we will have an even worse surprise in France than we did with Americans and the Brits, to be honest. But that's just me, to be honest. People should remember the Dreyfus affair and, and we don't. Yeah. You know, yeah. the way Muslims mm-hmm. are. In put into these suburbs, the yeah. Banlieu, and, Flair, and, and mean, they're not the, exactly welcomed in France either, right? There's quite a lot of issues. I had an episode on this phenomenon that is being called in mainstream French discourse, like actually, quote unquote, respectable circles, like Islam or leftism, as in there is a, a conspiracy between Islamists and leftists, which is funny. But it's not funny we, when it gets pretty bad. We had that one too. We had that one too here in the Obama era. Yes. And so this is very specific. It has just a specific French flavor to it in the sense that you will have the specific responsibility of France and the Holocaust being denied by people on the right and the left. And this is their way of saying, well, France wasn't in France. It was under occupation. It was actually in London in exile with the goal. But at the same time, ignoring that it was actually the French gendarmerie that cataloged and organized and then sent these French Jews to their deaths. You have all of these things, and it's very much still with us. Like the denial of the Veldiv, as it's called, this roundup of French Jews, is being denied to this day by, again, French leftists and some, not all, and especially the the French far right. And it is being normalized in many ways because it's part of this you might call it to make France great again, this course, because it is, there are parallels there. And for me, this also goes back to at least partly, obviously a big part of it is France's own colonial past and France's quote unquote Algerian question. But I think part of it also goes back with this European wide lack of really wanting to engage with what we might call, for lack of a better term, the Jewish question, pre-Holocaust and also post-Holocaust. This is one of the, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that you've written, you put things in context in a way that a lot of other people don't, I see, especially online, good Lord. But you've written specifically about how you cannot understand the actions Israel is taking without understanding all of yeah. this stuff, without understanding all of this history. Can you make that connection explicit yeah, for try. us? I always, whenever I answer that, I always forget something that I regret later. But there is something f- fascinating. I, I read a bit of Hebrew. I learned a bit of it when I was in, when I was in London. Just enough to get by and then I use Google Translate for the rest. And there are certain narratives that I see expressed by Israeli Jews, which, if you don't understand the context, see, sound insane. Like it's, they really feel, genuinely feel, well, many of them, obviously not all, that this is an existential threat. If they don't just 
bomb everything and ethnically cleanse everyone and just do all of these horrible stuff that we've been seeing recently and before that they are at, at any point they can be driven to the sea to paraphrase uh, Ben-Gurion. And this people usually in my world, in my circles, sometimes misunderstand wanting to understand what that comes from with justification. And I, I just don't think that's how reality works. That's just not how, and I'm not going to sit here and say that there is trauma on both sides because that feels like a cheap shot. But in some ways there is. It's just, it, it is a reality that, and I'm not just the one saying so. You have one person that I've quoted a number of times, this Israeli intellectual. He passed away some, I think, two, three decades ago or something. It's pretty well respected, like Israeli Jewish Orthodox intellectual. And he is the one who actually compared Rabin's quote-unquote break-the-bones policy to Judeo-Nazis. And this, is, I don't need to tell anyone how, how provocative that term would sound. I don't use it. I'm not comfortable using it. But just to say that the arguments that I'm making have been made before. I've quoted Mahmoud Darwish, as I've quoted, who understood that there are these uh, parallel phenomenon happening at the same time. And this doesn't change the facts on the ground. Mahmoud Darwish saying that he understand, or he is, he is both grateful and ungrateful. Or let's put it this way: he is, he feels lucky and unlucky. That's I think that's the, per, the the terminology that he used for having the Israelis as his enemy, because he thinks and he argues, and I agree with him, that the world, in this case the West's attention on Israel Palestine, has to do with the West's own history. If you see what I mean, has to do with the Holocaust has to do with the establishment of the state of Israel, has to do with the support that then followed, especially after 1967, and so on and so forth. Now, these are broad stories. And the more you get into it, the more the messier it gets and the vaguer it gets at some point. I'm not going to you know, pretend that I can trace a perfect timeline of how things have shifted since 1948, even before. But it's at least part of it. And for me, trying to understand where all of this comes from is important. A lot of people that I know... I don't know if this is controversial at this point, but a lot of people I know tend to not want to deal with the fact that most Israeli Jews are not from Europe, that most Israeli Jews are actually from what is now the Arab world. And we can still talk about settler colonialism because it still is that. It doesn't have to just be white people replacing brown people or white people replacing black people. That's just not how things are more complicated than that because the overall structure still exists. But you can't just transplant European history and ignore what's been happening since 1948, since the actual establishment, especially since the, the 60s and the 70s, because then you have this entire population who are now the majority of Israeli Jews who will just say, we can't go back to Iraq or Yemen or what have you. And my contention is simply that this needs to be reckoned with. It's it's nothing more and it's nothing less than that. It doesn't mean changing any of my actual positions when it comes to Zionism, when it comes to the state of Israel, when it comes to policies, specific policies. It just means being able to approach them with a little bit more nuance. And some people view nuance as a threat, unfortunately. Yeah, there's a huge change in Israeli society that you're talking about. This is monumental. People had come from... Poland and other parts of Europe where they had been socialists, those were the people who got there, I think, and or most were most important first and set it up that way. And you're talking about the Israelis called Mizrahi. Mizrahi, yeah. Mizrahi shift, who had vastly different experiences. And it's interesting now because we actually still have Netanyahu and now Naftali Bennett, who's have, I mean, come from the in a sense, older world in in Israel. And now yeah. they're going to be, or Naftali continues that tradition, and we still haven't had a Mizrahi prime minister. And I just think it's interesting that it's even Israel itself hasn't accepted this, this shift, right? Yeah, uh, very much. So. There was a, con you can read the memoirs of Ben-Gurion, for example, and see this, that he saw, I, I think it was him specifically, but it could have been people around him, I might be mistaken here, but a number of Israeli leaders at the very least reluctantly accepted that you will have these quote-unquote Eastern Jews, because that's what Mizrach means. Mizrach just means East in Hebrew. They, we accept that they come to Israel, but we, they need to be essentially civilized. They need to be Westernized. They need to be de-Arabized. Canadian listeners would think of what's been happening with the residential schools is the whole kill the Indian, save the man. It's the same kind of 
of logic and overtly so this is not this is now we're a bit more squeamish about saying these things because we've evolved from this but this underlying belief system is very much there israel zionism was conceived in a specifically european context it is a form of nationalism at the end of the day and like any nationalism whether left nationalism it will have this exclusivity to it there will be an inside group and an outside group there's the us and the others as it the kind of the historic weird thing for lack of the of a better term about zionism is that on the one hand, the East was the home, so Palestine would be the new homeland in, in what was Palestine, historic Palestine. And, but at the same time, the laws and the governments and the, the values, quote unquote, that we are, we, the Israelis, I'm not pretending to be Israeli here, are, are, are supposed to emulate are the Western ones. The laws came from Italy and Switzerland and France and the UK, you know, obviously the Balfour Declaration, everything after that. And the founders of Israel very much viewed it as a Western outpost in an otherwise, quote-unquote, sea of Arabs. We see these metaphors all the time. So that inherent supremacist, if you want, logic is still with us today. Now, there are many Israeli Jews who disagree with this. You, you can inherit something. You can be a, a, a white settler in the United States or in Canada, but doesn't mean that you support colonialism. You can have these, you inherit a world that was often built before you were born for, for in most cases, and you can strive and struggle against it. Not unfortunately, the problem, one of the many problems today is that the younger generation of Israeli Jews are actually even more right wing. And I think this then, which is a parallel that doesn't really, is not really seen in much like elsewhere there are some exceptions when you think of the of the american example for example that's that's a pretty stark contrast american jews just to speak of the the obvious one he have went in a certain direction ideologically speaking in the past couple of decades three decades israeli jews have gone almost exactly the opposite end of the spectrum and i am worried that we are getting to the point where you have these for lack again better term polarization that's getting to the point where you have really like Prominent mainstream Israeli Jewish politicians and Naftali Bennett famously or infamously said, I've killed many Arabs in my lifetime and I've seen, I've seen no problem with that. And he is now prime minister. You have people who just go on Israeli TV and say things like, I don't know, like we've bombed this, but unfortunately there weren't any civilian casualties or these things are, if you just translate them, unfortunately, all of this, most of this is in Hebrew, so it doesn't always get translated. But it would absolutely just sound genocidal, which it is. And so I'm worried about these polls that we've seen in recent years of not, I don't think it's 50%, but it's like pretty close, like 40%, let's say, of many Israeli, like of Israeli Jews actually being okay with a quote unquote transfer of Arabs, including citizens of Israel, Palestinian citizens of Israel, which is basically ethnic cleansing. And I'm, I'm worried of where we're getting if we don't get to a point where there is outside pressure, and maybe we can talk about this, outside pressure on actually saying that this is no longer acceptable, that it should have never been acceptable, but at the very least that now we draw, we're drawing this red line and it shouldn't be crossed, if you see what I mean. Let's talk about that outside pressure just a little bit, because it feels like, the, again, just watching the tenor of the, converse, the public conversation here in the States – that after Netanyahu, after the opposition put together uh, a new government, and we know that Netanyahu is on his way out, that things cooled down here. That, okay, we got the guy, at, there's a perception that the guy at the top is leaving and things are going to cool down again. Can you explain to us all the ways that is very dangerous thinking and why we should be concerned about the incoming prime minister, as you've already talked about? Yeah, he's far right. Openly, there is there is an, a a misunderstanding. I think that's a global thing. I don't think it's anything. It's just an American thing. But of thinking that if secular is more moderate than religious, right? And because Naftali Bennett is a secular figure, more or less, so was Netanyahu. But people tend to forget that that it's better than having the more overtly religious Zionists in power uh, because now you don't have them in power because they're on Netanyahu's side and so they're technically part of the opposition. I'm not going to say that's never true anywhere. There might be less overt incitements in the sense of you'll have actual Jewish mobs trying to lynch Arabs as we've seen in the past month. Maybe, sure, you can make that argument, but in terms of structural forces, 
Gaza is still under a blockade. The West Bank is still militarily occupied. Palestinians from East Jerusalem are still considered basically residents and not citizens of, of Israel, for example, given that Israel claims all of Jerusalem as its state. We're obviously seeing the ongoing threat of eviction from the Sheikh Sharah neighborhood and the Silwan neighborhood and other neighborhoods. We've seen re- uh, repeated attempts, often successful by the Israeli state, to essentially ethnically cleanse a number of Palestinians and Bedouins from what's called the Negev in English and, and Hebrew or the, the Nakab, Nakab in Arabic. I can go on, on and on. Other than the just within Israel proper, the borders of 48, the system that both an, an NGO, an Israeli NGO like Beit Salem, and international NGO like Human Rights Watch, not to mention so many other Palestinian NGOs, have has called have called apartheid. And this is still there. Might even get worse under Naftali Bennett. I, I have no idea. I can't really predict that. But it's the same. It goes back to my initial... Like what I started with before, like when we started chatting is I don't know where to start when I talk about violence. I don't know. We can talk about quote unquote the recent flare ups as it's usually described. And sure, there is a timeline and you can start with that specific date on that specific time. And you can, I'm sure many people have spent countless hours analyzing the pros and cons of what Hamas has done and pros and cons of what the idea has done or whatever. The underlying structure is still there. And as long as the underlying problem problems are still there. I am I'm very pessimistic about the, the short-term future, let alone the long-term future. And I, I think this is not to downplay the shift of narratives as we've been as we've been discussing, because that is important. That's in many ways the first step. But there is a lot of reframing that needs to be done, and in, in my view, it needs to be done much faster than the current pace of things, of understanding that you have a one-state reality. Like regardless of whether you believe in a one-state solution, two-state solution, nine-state, I don't care. But there is a one-state reality. And given that there is a one-state reality, there is a single military occupier. Palestinians have no airport, no tanks, no navy, no air force. That's why for me the word conflict is just so, it's just, it's just out there as a word that is really meaningless. As, as is violence often, unless we really understand structure, how it manifests itself in a structured way as well. But as long as this power imbalance isn't addressed, and I'm not just saying that the only way to so- to solve this is to have a Palestinian army to fight an Israeli army, which is never going to happen anyway. All I'm saying is that there is a one-state reality. And this whole framework of pretending that you have an Israel and a Palestine, and you have these kind of, in the popular imagination, two sides of this conflict, I really think it needs to be done away with by now, uh, just because it's inaccurate. It is simply inaccurate to in, in terms of the facts on the ground. All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. All right, Angry Planet listeners, we are back. So my question now is we've talked about outside pressure from Europe. We've talked about outside pressure from the United States. What? Is the outside pressure like from the, for lack of a better term, Arab world? And I ask that partially with the idea of the Gaza border with Egypt in mind, which Egypt has, it's a very strict border, right? Yes. We're talking yes. about yeah, yeah. barbed wire. We're talking about guards. We're talking about um, what is the pressure now from outside of Israel, Palestine, Gaza, the West Bank. And I'll also throw out that we've seen a lot of "quote unquote" normalization of relations in the past five years. Right, Abraham Accords. This, I think, we we can debunk another myth, which is the Israeli-Arab conflict as a 
narrative that at this point doesn't say anything. There are as a, it's very difficult to ignore that most of the Arab states are dictatorships and or royalties, which are basically monarchies, which are basically dictatorships. And it doesn't mean anything to say that this is what Egyptians want. For example, when it comes to Israel, Palestine, this is how Egyptians feel because Egyptians have no say in what Egypt does in the first place. Same for uh, Khalijis, people in the Gulf, same for obviously Syrians, same for pretty much most of the region. And this is not a small part of the story. One thing that I think we saw in, in some, I don't know if this is cynical, I don't know, but in some way, like what Trump allowed us to show and to see is that there are lots of states that will be totally fine with quote unquote normalization with the Israeli state. I think that was a, a myth that was like, that should have been shattered a long time ago of having this unified Arab front, supposedly. There never was a unified Arab front. That's just not how anything works. Like You don't have the average Arab in Morocco thinking the same way as the average Arab in Jordan or in Oman or whatever. Like That's just not how anything thinks. You have internal dynamics. You have regional dynamics. You have whatever. You have a myriad of, of factors that fall in, that fall into this. So in terms of what the Arab League did, like some kind of emergency thing, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, unless there are conditions, like actual conditions that the Arab League puts forward of if you don't do this, Israel, we will do this. Nothing matters. What's the point of threatening the Israelis if you have most of the Gulf now on their their side and the Egyptians on their side and the Jordanians on their side? And all of the other states, who's the only one who calls themselves anti-Israel? What, Syria? That, That doesn't... It doesn't have this gravitas as you had in like the 60s or in the 50s even. And in many like in many ways, I think most people, when they think of the Israeli-Arab conflict, they just picture like Golda Meir and Gamal Abdel Nasser and the King of Jordan versus the King of whatever. And it hasn't been that way in a long time now. <laughs> like in a, my generation, I'm 30 now. None of that has, it hasn't been true for all of my life. I've inherited these same stories from my own parents and grandparents. But it just hasn't been true in a long time now. And I think many people are still in denial about that. So that sort of, you know, answers your question. But for me, outside pressure, the Arab League is irrelevant as far as I'm concerned. Egypt is completely complicit in what the Israelis are doing in Gaza. It can simply open the border. It does not want to open the border. It's really that simple. They have their own nationalistic, militaristic, xenophobic, anti-Palestinian politics as well. And... These narratives of Arabs on one side and Israelis on the other side simply do not make sense. And it even ignores, and just to go back to that initial uh, earlier point, that a lot of Israeli Jews are actually of Arab origins, at least partly of Arab origins. I'm not going to call them Arab Jews if they don't identify as Arab Jews. I'm just saying that many Iraqi Jews, for example, would have identified as Iraqi Arabs or Iraqi Jewish Arabs. Judeo-Arabic was one of their languages. And this is just one of the many ways in which the usual narratives of two sides or a conflict just doesn't like it it says it hides much more than it actually exposes if you see what i mean it just raises many more questions than it tries to answer and i don't think it it's really useful i think you have two different uh, mythologies obviously right you have the jewish mythology or honestly there's definitely some truth to it that it has been jews against the world, or that's the mindset, certainly, among a lot of people I grew up with, for sure. And it was what I was taught. And you do have a lot of interesting parallels with the past, but also with Palestinians in that I totally get what you're saying, that if you had asked in the 1930s, uh, a Jewish person who was living in Iraq, they would say they were an Iraqi Jew. They would not separate themselves from Iraqis necessarily. German Jews, same situation. They thought they were part of German life. And I think that what Jews feel, and I'm going to speak for every Jew because of course I know, so forgive me (laughs) for that stupid generalization, but you know, that you can't feel truly safe or at home unless you live inside Israel. And if you live inside Israel, you can't feel safe and at home because, as you said, you could be wa- washed into the sea. Man, it's a tough situation if that's how you think. How do you behave if that's what you truly believe? Do you know what I mean? That- yeah. yeah. One of the many ironies is that 
It's definitely true. I mean, based on many conversations that I've had, that many Jewish friends do feel that historically, at least, it's been justified to view Jews as being Jews on one side alone against the entire world. The very bitter irony is that many Palestinians would feel the same way. And this is one of the many ways in which this quote-unquote conflict has all of these very cruel parallels. And I'm not going to compare the situation of Palestinians to the Holocaust. I'm not going to do that. Some people do that. I'm not comfortable doing that. It doesn't... Or, okay, let me put it differently. I'm not going to do that because I, I don't think it's sensitive. But there are parallels that people usually evoke. And I think when they do that, they might mean, but they miss specific contextual... Mix, miss, miss specific contexts. And when I mentioned before that it actually surprises many people that I know personally, which I discovered very recently during my studies in the past few years, essentially past six, seven years, that most Israeli Jews are actually not from Europe. This confuses a lot of people because it's like, well, what do we do with that information now? Like it doesn't fit a pre-established narrative. I'm talking about a pan-Arabist narrative. I'm not talking about Palestinians here. I'm not talking about the Palestinian cause. It, It gets conflated a lot, I know, and I think that's a problem. But I'm talking about narratives that tend to have, that usually has, have been inherited from our parents and grandparents. And I think that this is one of the many ways, and I haven't really gone into uh, talking about it, so I'll mention it now. But one of the strengths of what's been happening in, in the past month is actually that you have a, I'm not going to call it repoliticization because it was never depoliticized, but Palestinian citizens of Israel, usually I, they would call themselves Palestinians from the inside, al-Dakhil in Arabic, or they would just say 48, have been protesting on a daily basis against not just like police violence within Israel or against the IDF or whatnot, but actually in solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza and Palestinians in, in, in the West Bank, for example, or in Jerusalem. And this is something that does not fit. And sorry if it's a bit, it's not completely related to your question, but just I forgot to say that. This is something that that simply does not fit any of the statements that we have seen in the past month, like uh, the Europeans saying, let's chill, th- like, let's chill and have, you know, uh, reduce violence on both sides, quote unquote, or the Americans saying the same thing. Americans not even saying that, saying Israel has the right to defend itself. That doesn't mean anything anymore. It, it simply is. A, it's an imposed top down way of thinking about things, which obviously how these governments tend to think. And it's been doing a lot of damage. And I think one of the, ways and maybe that's more to your question but one of the things that it's been hiding is europe's direct role in what's been happening and i'm not just talking about the obvious support that the german state provides to the israeli state for example you know one one uh, thing that people tend not to want to think about usually for example when you talk about europe is that of course the west at the time the west german state paid reparations to the israeli state which i'm fine with i don't care but two years before that, Ben-Gurion's government passed the law that is now the most infamous law for Palestinians, preventing Palestinians who were exiled from their lands from returning. And this absentee law, as it's called, so that everyone, including my grandfather, who had a property or whatnot in what became Israel, those places, those houses, basically became the property of the state. Someone like, I think it was Golda Meir, if I'm not mistaken, was living in a villa that was owned by a Palestinian family. And you have these photos that were spread, uh, I think, about a few weeks ago. And we know these people. Like, it's not a, when we say Palestinian families, like, we know them. We know their names. We know their stories. We know their photos. They were their books. Some of them have written books about it. It's not really a secret. But it's really the rest of the world that hasn't caught up to the Palestinian story. And I, I think we're seeing it catch up a bit in recent months if not years and sorry yeah this is a bit of a rambling on my part but this is something that that often isn't as understood as it should be and it's part of the reason why i see a lot of the time people on quote-unquote all sides like both sides or whatever saying things as if they're talking to the other person as if they're addressing the palestinian on the other side but they may actually be addressing jewish history they may actually be be appealing to, which in, in recent years, especially European history. And that there is a kind of a, a translation issue, not just like Hebrew, Arabic, English, whatever, but like an actual translation of experiences that isn't happening or some people are doing it. Like one Israeli group is called which is Remembrance, and they do that kind of work, but most people don't. I'll tell one small story and uh, sort of like to get your opinion on it. Actually, I actually have through marriage a relative 
living on what they call a mashav, little farming community that's not far from the Gaza border. And where they, and I don't think it's disputable, they regularly have rockets shot at them. Yeah, yeah. And even when, you know, like people here in the United States would say, there's no conflict at this point, right? No one's actually, there's no military reaction, whatever. There is. That's, And I think the Palestinian side would say, okay, and it's an everyday thing for us too. So fair enough. But he was a Holocaust survivor and went down into his shelter and he would not leave. His younger you know, family members were like, hey, time to go. And he was exhausted by life and by his experiences. And it's just feeling that I'm not going, I'm not going anywhere. This is, you know, my life, this is my place. And I only say that as an illustration really of this, how intractable this conflict really is. What do you say to him? And what do you say to someone in your family who had property in what's may now be Israel or West Bank. What do you say to those people and how do you get them to move? How do you get them to And to throw a wrench to throw another wrench in that too, what's the word that's better than conflict that we yeah. can use as a shorthand to describe this? Because I totally get where you're coming from. That framing doesn't quite work. No, it doesn't, but I still use it. The, the, the limitations of language. I'll, I'll try and think about this. Like for me, like Jason, that's why I also feel very strongly about borders and border regimes in general. One thing, I've heard similar stories to what you just said. There was, I believe, I think it was a Haaretz episode where the person being interviewed mentioned the sim- similar thing, like the old timers on what's now the Gaza borders, like Jewish old timers didn't want to leave because they were just too tired of things. And it's horrible. I, I don't, I, what do you say other than this is horrible, I'm sorry this is happening, and I wish this wasn't happening? You know, like on, on some level, this is very human. One thing that the blockade has done, and this is maybe like one thing that I can I can speak to that person, like your relative, and, and frame it that way, maybe that works. Because I can say Nakba, I can say, and I, I should, and I will, but if it's not also linked to a personal experience, then it can feel decontextualized for many people's experiences. And one thing that the blockade has done is it's actually cut off people who lived who live on both sides of that border. You did have more interactions. Uh, you had Palestinians in Gaza who will say and would still say that they do have friends on the other side of the border. That doesn't change their views or their politics towards the Israeli state. I can recommend a, a an episode of Haaretz in which you have Muhammad Shahada. It's a recent one, so people can just look it up, a podcast, who is originally from Gaza, and he he finished the like the, the conversation with saying stay safe out there. He was talking to his Israeli Jewish host, and that so like there is a and a lot of it I think gets lost, not necessarily in translation. I hesitate to say this, but it's not always expressed on social media because that's not the function of social media. It's not you're not nuanced on social media for the most part. You have to state your position and to repeat it. I would try as much as I can. I wish I, I've, I've tried to be inserted in in these situations recently as well, but it's difficult and it's difficult with my own family as well. It's difficult with like people. So if I may, like. People would assume, for example, if I say that my grandfather was born and raised in Haifa, would assume that therefore all of my family have the same view of, quote unquote, the conflict. And that's just not true. You have some of them who don't care. They're simply depoliticized and they just don't care. And they don't think it's a priority because they view themselves as Lebanese now. And that's it. You have others who are cynical. You have some that are like, they just think that everything is a conspiracy by ex-power or by the Americans, for example, or whatever. And you have others that might have a more nuanced take on things. And w- what gets lost in all of this is that you have had, like, throughout this, the past seven, eight decades now, multiple, both Palestinians and Israeli Jewish intellectuals and activists and others who have been saying, we just need uh, to do this and X, Y, and Z. And in many ways, it's fair. It's a just solution. But the reasons why it hasn't come to pass that way. It doesn't have much to do with what they wanted, what they did, they did not want. If your relative, I, of course, I don't know him. I would assume that 
He wants things to just be better. He just wants the situation to be, of course, no one wants rockets falling out. One thing that you mentioned, though, if I may, is that he went to a shelter. People in Gaza don't have shelters. That's that's just one of the many realities. It doesn't diminish. This is the thing that I saw footage of Israeli like kids, like Jewish kids running to the shelters. And you have some people who will be cynical and say, at least they have shelters. It's still terrifying to run towards a shelter. But like this does not diminish from the genuine fear that is expressed in those moments. One thing that I try to do, which is not easy, as, as you might imagine, is just hold that, accept that this is scary. And at the same time saying this is also scary in a different way, like in Gaza. In many ways, of course, it is worse in Gaza. It does not mean that things are fantastic everywhere else. There is just this inability or this need in many ways for people to think always in binaries and not understand it's actually more of a spectrum kind of thing. And so I would say that probably one of the safest things to do right now is to end the blockade of Gaza. Honestly, I think that's one of the best things to do right now, not just for the people of Gaza, obviously for the people of Gaza, but because it's a horrible situation to be in. And you have many people who will support Hamas, even if they're not Islamists, even if they hate Hamas and they view Hamas as a thuggish, corrupt group, which they are. But what else is there for them? Like, I have Palestinian friends in Gaza who would see themselves as atheists who are fine. Uh, not fine. Sorry, that's the wrong phrasing who just don't see any other option other than to quote-unquote critically support what Hamas is doing because they say they see on one hand the more polite approach that the PA is proposing. And they view now the PA as essentially collaborators because the PA is also like suppressing protests in the West Bank on behalf of Israel. And on the other hand, the only other playing right now, only other main player anyway, is Hamas forcing the Israelis to come to the negotiating table. And now we're at a situation where the only language is that Hamas knows it's Hamas is pretty pragmatic in its own ways. Please don't misunderstand as any kind of support. Obviously, it's just pragmatic in a political sense. It knows that it can that, you know, the leaders of Hamas know that they can do X, Y and Z, sometimes experiment with X, Y and Z and see what works and what doesn't work. Israel, as of now, has shown time and time again that the only thing that they will respond to is if their lives, the lives of Israelis, are, re- are rendered extremely inconvenient, if not horrific. And as long as that is the, the reality, I fear for what's next. And I think given that Israel is the military power, Israel is actually the one that can implement those changes, if you see what I mean. People pull the levers of power that are available to them. One thing that is similar in Gaza is not everybody makes it to the shelter. I yeah. mean, it's and I think it's because I have kids myself that I just, the idea, and I really don't care whether they're Israeli or Palestinian, the idea of kids dying is just the stupidest, most horrible thing there is. And not everybody makes it to their shelter, not every, and lots of the number of kids killed in, in Gaza, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever, whether Hamas uses them as human shields, you don't, or you think that it's just indiscriminate bombing, doesn't matter. Just simply in the sense of like the horror of children dying. Yeah. So two things I wanted to, one thing I want to highlight because it's something that our producer Kevin is always on in me about, something that's come up in the early part of this conversation. But I think it's important is here in America, especially, we're extremely critical of social media and its uses. And we've, we, we had this love affair with it for a long time. And now are we're talking about regulation and are generally upset with it. And people agree that it's awful and terrible. And, and I think it's really important when we have these conversations to highlight how important and transformative social media has been in places like Palestine and in Gaza and in Syria and how trend and how important it is for people to be able to get those images out instantaneously, like you were saying earlier. But then the other thing I wanted to ask you, I wanted to read one of your tweets to you, everyone's nightmare <laughs> uh, and kind of get a reaction to it or get you to expound on it a little bit. Tankies are again, trying to hijack the Palestinian cause to support oppressive regimes from China to Russia to Iran and beyond. I have received multiple messages from friends, including Palestinian Syrians who just can't handle the amount of pro Assad, Iran, or Turkey BS that too many on this hell site entertain. They're definitely no majority, but they are very loud and they make their presence felt. Yeah, I, I, I was worried that it was going to be a tanky question. But I guess I would emphasize the, the last bit, that they're not a majority. And I think that's really important to always highlight. 
the reason why they have or the reason why they have such a disproportionate flat platform is why I have one of one of my main issues with social media today. And I think that's one of the very valid uh, criticisms of websites like Twitter, like Facebook, like Instagram. And that's that's putting aside the censorship and other stuff that also people other people are talking about. One so for those who don't know tanky is the, the term comes from tanks, obviously, and it's a refer it's a slur at this point, but I think an accurate one against authoritarians who would call themselves leftists. That's what matters to me, is that they're authoritarians who use left wing language. I don't care whether they see themselves as leftists. Because I actually view a lot of parallels between the way they talk and the way people on the right talk. And I think this Syria is the main story in the past decade that has really brought this home for me. It's actually, I I would argue that the Syrian story caused revolution, everything that came after is what has radicalized me on that front. I'm not the only one who has said this. Many Syrians have said this for that matter. But Syrians were demonized in Syria long before they, many of them became refugees and were then demonized in Europe. And they were demonized in Syria, overwhelmingly so, by people on the left. And I think this is something that we need to reckon with. I'm saying we, I don't have to because I, I have never engaged with that. But many people on the left have to reckon with this, even if they don't view themselves as tankies. Because one of the one of the fundamental ways in which tankies usually operate is by calling themselves pro-Palestine first, and then entering other spaces through that. They, w- they are often seen as having a Palestinian flag, and then they would have flags of China and North Korea and whatever. And this is not accepted in our circles, but sometimes, not always, sometimes tolerated. And I think this is where my problem lies. And a lot of the time, these are people that are not Palestinian. Most of the time, they're not Palestinians. They're not even Arabs. Most of the time, they tend to be Westerners. They tend to be people who, for lack of a better term, view the entire entire region in the same way as tourists might, might view it. And I have a lot of problems with these people. <laughs> I have a lot of problems with these people because I know like Palestinian Syrian friends who are whose family were exiled by the Israelis, by the you know Israeli state, and whose father, for example, or cousin or what have you, is still forcibly disappeared by the Assad regime. And for me, this is one of the things that like you can, people can throw at me as much as anything. As long as this kind of fundamental reality isn't dealt with, I I think it, it causes more, it causes a lot of bitterness, a lot of pain and suffering that is unwarranted. And again, these are always a minority. The people who you have like a handful of people who wore like Saddam Hussein shirts and stuff. And these people are not taken seriously for the most part. But I think because the urgency of the situation, especially in times where you have like active bombing, when you have a situation like this, usually nuance isn't welcomed in those spaces because nuance is slower and you need to be faster, right? It's it's really that simple. It's one of the issues I have with social media as well is that things have to be faster. And I think that if we in the Palestinian cause in general don't recognize in the same way as many Palestinians have recognized that there is an anti-Semitism issue that needs to be rooted out and called out and all of that long time ago, long before social media. I think that there is an issue of authoritarian, left-wing authoritarianism, which I'm just calling tanky, hijacking essentially the Palestinian cause in order to justify other things. Like these people who will, they will say that they are outraged by what the Israelis are doing, but then in the next tweet, be totally fine with what the Assad regime is doing. And contrary to what some people would argue, this is not what about them, because I am not comparing the Israeli state with the Syrian state. I have no intention of doing that. For Palestinians in Israel, Israel is the biggest problem. In Israel-Palestine, Israel is the biggest problem. For Palestinians in Syria, activists, Syria is the biggest, like the Assad regime is the biggest problem. That's just the reality of the situation. Doesn't mean that one, one is pro-Assad and the other is pro-Israel. It just means that they will have different priorities on a day-to-day basis. It's just the reality of the situation. So that would be what aboutism. What aboutism is Israel bombs Gaza and you say, what about what the Assad regime is doing? If that's your, your only reaction. That is what aboutism. But what I'm talking about is not that. What I'm talking about is people being crushed by various regimes and seeing some people care about those specific people being crushed and not care about other people being crushed. And I think this is really my problem. It's a pretty basic. You don't need any isms. You don't need to call yourself anything to have that position. But yeah, I, I hope that answers. No, it does perfectly. I think that was a very eloquent explanation of why they should be chided for their intellectual dishonesty, I will call it. 
Thank you so much for coming on Angry Planet and walking us through. Um, we askew binaries here. We like to get into the weeds, and I really appreciate uh, this conversation. It was fantastic. Angry Planet listeners, that's all for this week. The show is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. It was created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like the show, we have a Substack, angryplanet.substack.com, where you can get for just $9 a month bonus episodes of the show to a month and commercial-free editions of the show you just listened to. Again, that's at angryplanet.substack.com. We will be back next week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.